Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast. I've got the Rethink Energy team here with me. We're going to talk about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm editor Peter White and I've got solar analyst Andres Fontenot. Hello there. Uh, hydrogen analyst Bogdan Avramuta. Hello everybody. Uh, EV analyst Connor Watts. Hello. And our product manager Simon Thompson. Hello. All the discussion you hear today comes from uh, the stories we've written in yesterday's free weekly issue of Rethink Energy. If you want to read that, go to www.rethinkresearch.biz. You click on energy and you'll be reading it. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about um, Brazil's Petrobras planning to spend $70 billion building 14.5 gigawatts of offshore wind. It's quite an investment. Uh, We hear about a new a shortage that will affect the price of solar modules. Um, we've only just got over the polysilicon shortage. And we understand that Ford is rejoining the race for autonomous driving. Is it got any chance of catching up? And finally, Simon will ask a few questions um, on the short items we've published in this week's issue. But we want to hear what's going on in Brazil first. Uh, we go over to Bogdan and he'll talk us through the new investment in offshore wind. Yes, so um, very good news from Brazil. Uh, Step in the right direction, I would say. Uh, Petrobras, obviously the uh, 64% state-owned oil giant, is looking into the feasibility of seven different offshore projects alongside uh, project developer Equinor. And those seven projects would amount to 14.5 gigawatts, of capacity and uh, it would cost them about 70 billion dollars so massive massive investment um and i think this is uh like i said this is a really good step for brazil we were expecting uh something like this after the recent presidential change south america highly dependent on hydropower so really their only way to increase the renewable share was um, was always going to be wind there's some some exceptions. Chile in South America, they can they can rely on on solar as well. By doubt, Brazil can say the same. So this would come as a as a massive aid. Brazil currently has about 22 gigawatts of onshore winds, no offshore wind. So if they do end up building 14.5 gigawatts by 2028, it's gonna bring them up to what 36.5 gigawatts, potentially double their wind capacity by 2030. Definitely a step in the right direction. I think um, Brazil partly relying on oil exports. Um, if you've been listening, it's funny that their partner they chose for it was originally an oil company themselves. I mean, I, perhaps Equinor mm. talks the same language as Petrobras. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, it just that, that originally Equinor was an oil company, and uh, oh right, okay, you yeah. know, it's, it chose to go heavily into renewables, change its name, mm. uh, and go heavily into renewables. And it's gone through that transition itself. So perhaps they uh, they have more in common yeah. um, that way. 2028 is a long way off, though, isn't it? 2028 is a while away. Um, mind you. Yes, but 14.5 gigawatts is not going to take a day to build. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. But it's probably got the kind of um, permitting regime where um, if the government says you can build it, you probably can build it. It's not true in America or Europe, though. Would, would that be why Petrobras has has been chosen for this? Because of the per, you know, it's easy to to for for permitting. It's for the government ownership. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. it's, it's it's wanting 
to own. I mean, we had the same thing with AMLO in uh, in Mexico, that the things that the government owns, they want those to do all the renewables because um, then they own the renewables. Therefore, the money isn't leaking out of the country through... Um, through to investors that sit in America. Um, and and the, the difference between Mexico and Brazil here is that um, instead of telling their oil company and their coal companies to invest in renewables, they just, Mexico just kind of killed off renewables by, by changing the terms on leases. Obviously, since the uh, new president has come into, uh, into Brazil, um, he's he's seen that he needs to turn what is an oil company into a an, an all-round energy company. And one of the problems you've got in Brazil with a lot of electricity coming from hydro is there's been a drought now for almost 10 years. So there's no point in, in building any more hydro dams? There really isn't any point in, in building any more. I mean, if that, that nobody's been able to put two and two together and realise that by burning the Amazon rainforests, you're um, you're destroying not just the trees but the roots of the trees, which bond all the water into the soil there, which creates the uh, t- the climate. So so actually, by burning Amazon, you're killing the rainfall, which is in turn killing the hydro, which is creating a problem. Um, and, and and there's shortfalls in hydro every year. Lula de Silva perhaps understands. I think it was something like halved uh, hydropower generation or something from this drought uh, compared to ten years ago. I don't, I don't remember the numbers, but I, they have specific droughts. They, 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 they kind of had a drought last year, which is talked about as a drought. But if you actually look at it, they, um, it's been a, more or less in drought for ten years. Do you think uh, yeah, the hydropower it's, it's, capacity will still be very useful as a dispatchable source of electricity? Eventually, they'll oh, only gorgeous. run it to to firm the wind and the solar. I think that's what they ought to do. I mean, do I think that will happen? It's difficult to say whether they've got the wisdom to do that, but that's the right thing to do. They wouldn't have to invest in battery if if they uh, if they uh, continue to keep alive all of, of that hydro. You, you know, the simple thing is that you you just hold the water in your uh, in your reservoirs until you need it. And so if you build up solar capacity, you only run your hydro at night. I mean, if it, it, but, but in this case, I mean, I've been to Brazil and there certainly appears to be plenty of sun and plenty of, uh, of capacity for solar development. But um, Well, it's one of the um, biggest boom markets for solar as well as wind. Actually, although the yeah. wind is probably more remarkable because everywhere's a boom market for solar right now, but wind's a bit slow, but apparently not in Brazil, so that's quite nice. I like the the concept that you know, Brazil has to accelerate this more than other countries because it's got it's it's partly dependent on uh, fossil fuel exports uh, and its production cost is is higher than many other places, so it actually has to address it um, rather than just saying, "Well, we'll still make some profit at low prices." So, how many countries? Yeah. Are- are there that are dependent on high cost of production fossil fuel exports? I know Mexico is another one, probably Venezuela as well, although that's Venezuela. I hate to say Iran, um, mm. but I think that, that is one. Uh, I think there are quite a few. I mean, it's really to do with the refining capacity um, that they have and how modern it is. I mean, obviously, different um, oil sources come out of the ground more or less easily 
But the, the most important thing is how much are you spending to refine it um, and how much transport is involved in taking it to and from the refinery. So that's part of the process. Um, Mexico bought a refinery in America um, so that it can use it exclusively for its own oil to bring down the price of, uh, of its oil. And they bought that from Shell as Shell was um, was getting rid of resources in the Permian Basin. So, I mean, Mexico may have done something about it. But um, if you go through the atlas that we that we, we wrote, we wrote up 50 countries and their, their energy. Um, uh, in one year, we did one country a week. And the atlas uh, entries tell you um, roughly what the uh, cost of oil is in each country to, to bring it to market. So there are some... Um, there are quite a lot of uh, countries where the um, the break-even price is thirty-five dollars, um, and not and, and there are other countries where it's as low as twenty, and it, it's really to do with how modern their refineries are. Um, yeah, so definitely Brazil. That, that is an issue around Brazil. And, and anyway, if uh, Lula wants to pick the the green route, I mean, he's really got to. Uh, do something and do something soon. Um, I believe when he was in power, his investment was in um, was in hydro. Uh, it was aggressive investment in hydro, and now that's probably not productive for him. So he's gone the he's gone the other route. I wonder how much support he's getting from the Petrobras executives. I wonder <laughs> how much they'll drag their heels on this. Yeah, once an oil man, always an oil man, it seems. Um, I just wonder if this will be delivered on time. Um, you know, it's uh, 2028 is going to be another election between now and then. If he gets in again, um, he can see this through. But if he doesn't, then most of those um, wind farms won't be completed. They'll just be in conceptual stages. And someone can save all the money by killing them all off. But let's hope that... Um, we don't end up with uh, another Bolsonaro in charge who only represents the um, the farming interests of the country, really. But, I mean, it is a big investment. I think it's a, it's a staggering move. And I think your point, uh, Andres, about solar, it's a hot spot in solar. Suddenly everyone's sensing the mood change and probably it's gone up um, from last year to this year in solar and will continue to rise. And I imagine there'll be more factories and things built there. Um, they still have, in this region, they have a, a kind of shared um, minimum requirement for um, ac across almost the whole region for how much ownership needs to be in, um, it, it, uh, held inside the country for new factories and things. So, uh, And they have a taxation rate which supports that. So if you build something in Brazil, you get almost no taxes. If you build it outside Brazil, you get a kind of 85% import duty. or, or what, um, it, it used to be 85%. I'm not sure what it is now. You know, so uh, I would expect to see a lot of changes going on I mean, in, uh, in this market. Local content requirements. I know that actually they have wind turbine factories in Brazil, don't they? But for solar, they'll probably just do modules, which is like Technologically, an investment cost su quite superficial. Depends um, if they want to export them to America. <laughs> oh, true. Then they'd want you to do cells and yeah. maybe also wafers. Um, One of the things you, you notice is if you walk around Rio um, and you talk in English, people will ask you in an aggressive fa fashion, are you American? <laughs> when you say no, 
they lighten their tone and they're nice to you. It's it's a really really obvious thing. They they have a, a real distaste for the way America has um, exploited their country. Let's move on. Um, so, Andres, there's another shortage in solar. Really? Um, what what one is it this time? Uh, well. It's actually been going on since mid-2022, but it was overshadowed by the, the, the more important polysilicon bottleneck. Uh, but what's happened, what made me finally notice it is that um, the polysilicon price went down slightly, but the wafer price actually went up. And one of these um, wafer companies, I think it was Longy, said, um, well, the, the reason for this is obviously not polysilicon. We, we, we're charging more for our wafers with this 4% price rise this week because of crucibles. Uh, and crucibles are made of high purity quartz sand. They're used uh, when you're turning polysilicon into an ingot, which is then sliced into wafers. So uh, it, it's right after polysilicon in the supply chain. And I've, I previously said that, I, I've actually almost explicitly said that, oh, I don't really need to bother covering the rest of the supply chain bottlenecks because they'll all be smoothed out more quickly than polysilicon. I mean, it takes 18 months to build new polysilicon capacity. Oh, nothing else really takes that long. And maybe I was a bit complacent because it might take uh, that long or even longer to, to build out new polys uh, crucibles. See, I'm, I'm so stuck on polysilicon. I almost said polysilicon instead of crucible. It might take quite a long time to build out new crucible production capacity. And it seems like the shortage, I think the shortage right now exists for both for the crucibles and for the high purity quartz sand that they're made, that, um, that they're made out of. I think the more enduring bottleneck will probably be with the high purity quartz sand, uh, because like I say in the article, uh, it takes, uh, you don't want to use synthetic quartz sand because it's expensive. So you want to uh, just mine the quartz, but there's only a few places where the quartz is very uh, high purity uh, for mining. So it, it's a bit awkward for that reason. Uh, and where are they? Mines obviously take a while to build. Well, I think the biggest uh, supply of high purity quartz sand is actually in the US. Uh, in <laughs> I can't remember which state, but it's kind of interesting because that goes against all the typical typical commentary of China has the solar industry and America is trying to sanction it. Well, actually, America has part of the supply chain, a very narrow but still necessary part that, uh, and they haven't used it against the Chinese in this trade war, which is a bit odd maybe they just maybe maybe the industry just kept very quiet and didn't tell their government about <laughs> about this opportunity um well no government worries about exports do they you know if you they're not going to put a limit on their own exports hmm. true so the the only finite supplies of court sand and it's only court sand that you can use to make polysilicon is that correct well this isn't to make polysilicon this is to make crucibles um uh, and the crucibles have to oh, be right, pure, okay. pure so that they don't um interfere when when you're manipulating the polysilicon it's it's like a very clean container i mean i'm sure any material scientist will wince at so, so if, if i'm a, a a developer in america mm. um do i care about this i mean basically um modules um, are supposed to be mostly coming from American sources now. It, I'm not allowed to buy from China anyway. China is the one experiencing the shortfall. Hmm. So, you know, what, what advice do you give to any developer about, you know, should they put in their orders early? Um, is this going to be uh, another price hike at the module level for how long? 18 months? Um, 
uh, is this ever going to get go away? Uh, I think it will continue to add a few percentage points to the module cost for uh, quite possibly a few years. I've only just started looking into it. Um, I mean, right now, I would say buy as many modules as possible because actually there's this tariff moratorium uh, through to June 2024. So you, you can buy Chinese products, I believe. Uh, no, no, not China. Not so China. they'll be, still be doing Southeast their Asian pro products, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which are definitely right, not right. Chinese, you know, unless they are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, so, and, and actually right now, th there is another obstacle to the um, the imports from the, from Southeast Asia, which was the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act. And I, I think I, I think I forgot to, I, I didn't remember if I mentioned this uh, in our little worth noting section, but uh, that seems to have eased up recently. Um, the, the seizures at American ports of modules, uh, has uh, some of them have been released. So I think the trade is flowing a bit, but that's obviously only for until June, 2024. Yeah. And after that, does this affect, um, well, I think it affects everyone because if you're, trying to make wafers uh, and ingots in America, which will happen later on in the, in the 2020s, um, you know, you'll be competing for quartz sand and crucibles with the Chinese uh, manufacturers. But, but you, that's only if you use polysilicon. If you, if you use some kind of iron deposition, thin film process, which may emerge, um, this won't apply to you. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't apply to first solar, for example. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but that's not not just because it doesn't use silicon, because of, of <laughs> yeah, how you build thin film. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's so. Two, the, the, yeah. Okay. So um, it's it's about how um, you're saying it's going to make a difference of what um, under one percent of modules, uh, more than five percent. What kind of percentage? Well, right now it's two point eight percent of the module price and zero point seven percent of a. Uh, utility scale product, or more like 1%, I suppose. Right. I think it can go much higher than that because there, no, there was nothing really stopping the polysilicon producers from charging uh, six times their cost of production. And probably the crucible makers and quartz sand people are already doing the same thing. So what, what actually stops you from just charging 10 times your cost of production? If it's the bottleneck, you've got all of this impetus to buy and install solar panels because the cost of energy is high. So if you're a crucible maker, why can't you just charge more and more? Probably at some point, the Chinese government might step in, uh, at least with, with their um, national crucible making company. So there, there'd be some. Limit, yeah. I but I think this will, uh, yeah, so this will, this could become, I mean, this is the first time I've looked into it fully, but I think this could become quite serious. I don't think it, I, I don't... Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act, on the one hand, is making it more profitable for you to install solar, and this is making it less profitable. Um, I think the Inflation Reduction Act trumps um, this cost. Yeah. So I, I, I suspect that, that it won't halt any momentum that's already built up, and we've seen increasing momentum in the solar sector. I, I don't... You know, I, I do think uh, it'll still be worth it to buy solar modules. Uh, I don't think it'll be. Uh, I also don't expect it to be quite as significant as the polysilicon price component ever was, because before this, I mean, the the cost of crucibles to a um, to a solar module was probably well under one percent. I, I think it was one percent. I think I actually did that calculation in this article, maybe. So it's more about the actual number of. Um, crucibles that can be made because you discard a, a crucible every 12 days or so. So you have to constantly produce more of them. Uh, so if the 
raw if the simple supply uh, in tons of quartz sand is is not enough then that uh, does put a limit on the wholesaler industry uh, in terms of what can be deployed worldwide yeah and you have to look for a, a, a new process element you have to look at another way of doing it because yeah. um, when you get to something like battery you know because there's no cobalt there's not enough cobalt in the world you end up um, thinning it out and then getting rid of it in battery that's you design it out of the process so that's that's and perhaps should, what we need to be looking for i should qualify my words because i do actually mention in this article that there's uh, two alternatives you can do the synthetic quartz and I, I you know i've also seen a couple of western initiatives to recycle crucibles currently they're just discarded but i think you know both of those elements are quite expensive so so maybe if they get adopted then the the cost element will be more significant than than polysilicon was but then again it's just worth it. It's still worth it to buy the uh, the solar panels. Do do these crucibles only affect the solar industry, or do they affect other industries such as semiconductors? I think uh, well, semiconductors. I'm pretty sure use the synthetic uh, quartz sand, so it's it's a sort of different supply chain. It's very it's very much analogous to actually the silicon uh, supply chain because polysilicon is specifically solar grade. Um, we use other terms for electronics grade. Uh, silicon and uh, organic silicon and industrial silicon. So I think it's specifically the solar type of, of this, um, sub, sub, this this supply that's um, getting affected. I think the the I don't I don't think this is affecting the electronics industry, uh, and maybe the electronics industry is also struggling, but uh, with its own crucibles. But that would be a separate thing. Yeah, well, let's look into both next week. Let's, let's do a bit of digging. Um, we, we, we owe it to our customers to alert them to anything that's coming down the track. Um, let's move on. Um, Connor, um, I, I was shocked when I heard that Ford wasn't already in the, um, the autonomous driving market. It didn't really have connections and partnerships uh, able to give it autonomous driving. Um, Everyone seems to have been obsessed with it for the past eight or nine years, um, but they've made a re-entry. Um, I mean, it's, it's worth mentioning that our office on the ground floor, um, there's a company uh, who does exactly this. They write AI software for self-driving. Um, venture capitalists have been backing such a thing for a while. So it should be easy for you to find an acquire, i.e., you know, acquire a team by buying a company um, that is already significant, and that seems to be what they're doing. Yeah, so it's not entirely fair to say that Ford hasn't been in the autonomous driving sphere. They um, had a joint venture, or at least a shared ownership of a company called Argo AI, which they had forty-two percent ownership of. Volkswagen Group had forty-two percent ownership of, and the rest was minor investors. I believe Lyft had two and a half percent or something. Okay, and so. It, it is very much them rejoining the the race, as it were. Okay. They, um, Argo AI became defunct, I believe, in 2018, 2019 sort of time. And Ford is now re-entering with its own of a lot of people hired from Argo AI. So they've introduced Latitude AI, which has 550 people from Argo AI, where Argo AI was, I believe, 1,450 or so. So there's still 900 of them unemployed for hire. So... The article was more about seeing and thinking about where other companies are, because the one that everybody hears about most often is probably Tesla, usually for the wrong reasons. The full self-driving beta, which continues to be a barefaced lie. Well, you mean it can't, it's not full and it's not self-driving? No. 
none of the words in it. So the Inflation in Reduction uh, Act. <laughs> inflation Reduction Act it, uh, won't reduce inflation. You know, it's it's quite funny. They they name things like that. So yeah, full self-driving is neither full nor self-driving. Yeah, so Tesla, of their own admission at the moment, is at around level two, and an understanding of the ADAS concept of it goes from level zero to level five. Level zero is the most complicated thing in the car is like a braking sensor, where there is no automation for self-driving or cruise control or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Level one to level two is cruise control and kind of advanced cruise control. It gets progressively more capable up to level five, where it is completely automated full self-driving where there is no steering wheel, there's no pedals, and it is entirely capable without any human input whatsoever. In fact, it does better without human input. Exactly. Yeah, but, yes. but how many it's level only... fives are there out there? None. No, none. <laughs> As of right now, because it, 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 there's a few level fours, yeah, but I... they're limited to very certain geographic locations where maps and that sort of thing have already been very well-established, and they're in effectively controlled environments, doing a kind of... This is why the company that lives below us is called 5AI, for that very reason, from ADAS mm-hmm. Level 5. Oh. I should go talk to them. <laughs> I don't think there's anyone there anymore. I think they've all gone... No. Home. <laughs> they all work. No, that <laughs> So, do, I was going to say, for, for all these technology advanced, just for the EV market... It's, um, so should Tesla be worried if they're all these other if their rivals are, are, are uh, making technological advances in, in things like self-driving cars? I, I don't think they should be worried. I certainly don't think they should be worried. Tesla. It's um, not their like basis of the business. Tesla no. last year yeah, yeah. rewrote that whole suite. They started again. They um, they I can't remember what the error was that they made. But basically, they were. They were thinking in 2D and they wanted to think in, they wanted to build a 3D model. I can't quite remember how they expressed that, but they started from scratch with the team that they had and they came up with a new philosophy and wrote the new system in under a year. So, um, as we get go through learning curves, none of these are earning revenue apart from uh, Tesla. Tesla actually charges customers for full self driving and has used it for, don't they charge $10,000 now? Uh, and they've I used, thought it was fifteen. But yes. It might be. Um, they, it, I mean, it's gone up. It started at five, but mm. they um, so they've got some revenue which they can pile back straight into R and D, and they can cost justify it. But Google's been doing the same. Um, GM has been doing the same, and each of them have done it done it with companies that they've bought. Um, Uber did it for a while and then fell out of the market after a few crashes. So I think this is um, definitely. I mean, this is this is covering the base just in case it happens. Um, I'm not going to forecast when self-driving is going to happen, but I would say um, not in my lifetime. I think it's maybe not that far away, but I think the question of who it is that's going to reach it first is the challenge, because in general we have like we have Alphabet, we have Intel, we have Nvidia, then we have automotive OEMs that have just purchased the company, like. Um, Ford's established this this uh, unit involving people from Argo AI. GM uh, is doing it in-house, but they've just hired a bunch of people. So generally, I trust the software companies more to develop software, but it's not that simple, I think. The amount of investment that's going into it, because I know Intel bought Mobileye for $15 billion USD not too long ago, I think. Maybe. Right, but we know that Mobileye is just a vision system. It's not. It's not a full self-driving software. It's... Yeah, I think it had another. I think there have multiple aspects to it. I remember reading about 
Mobileye having both a vision system and a, a companion system that would be doing the functioning, if that makes sense. And they're looking at 2026, but timeframes mean nothing in this industry, as Tesla has uh, wisely shown. I mean, at the moment, um, the only full self-driving uh, companies are robo-taxi companies in California. I think there's two or three. And they have these neat little pods, which five or six people can sit in, um, which don't have a steering wheel, which drive around California on specific routes. And Those drop, are the level four systems. Dropping people about. at work, yeah. And to me, um, these pre-specified routes are, are, I mean, driving at 15 miles an hour um, are pretty much um, like fairground rides. They're not, this is not the future of um, of transportation. And especially, although California has promoted it to promote all the um, companies building these in California, um, it's a great source of employment, but it's make work. I don't see any revenue coming out of this in the medium term, not, not significant revenue. And you know, we don't want to confuse it with two other things, electric vehicles, which are ramping up and are ready fit for purpose and are ready to go, and connected vehicles, which are using um, a connection to provide information about the state and condition of your car. Um, those two trends are way ahead of, of, um, of autonomous driving, and autonomous driving's got to navigate the whole world becoming a proper map. I mean, I, I can remember Google Maps when it first came to Europe telling me to go through a wall um, to, <laughs> to get to the next building because the wall wasn't there before and it, they hadn't updated their map for three years. So you can't start relying on maps um, that aren't up-to-date and don't have an up-to-date process and don't have a business model. And you can't get insurance on cars, which do. So the, the whole issue of how car insurance is going to pan out it's probably a 10-year journey, how legislation is going to pan out, how the rest of the world becomes like California and allows this to happen, um, I think is a 20, 25-year journey. And, and I, uh, but I think Ford is terrified of being left at the starting gate. That's all it is. It can afford to 550 employees. Um, that's probably several millions of dollars, um, maybe $50 million a year, uh, in salaries, probably double that in total costs. They can afford that just to make sure they're not left at the starting gate. I find what's interesting about the industry is that it's very much US-centric, but I think this kind of autonomous driving and robo-taxi services and that sort of stuff will be better suited towards Europe as a way to reduce and kind of mitigate the need for car ownership. Because in America, you very much need to own a vehicle if you plan on going interstate or if you need to be able to drive places and you have long distances and that sort of thing so it's more of a necessity whereas Europe is increasingly more pedestrianized and so the need for car ownership will be reduced should self-driving and and autonomous driving properly take off you know there, there are ways this will come to market I mean for instance right now you take things like congestion zones people are trying to prevent people breathing unbreathable air in the middle of cities. So they go up with congestion zones. Um, London's got one, Bristol's got one, a load of, of cities across Europe have got one. And that's that, that cuts down traffic. If you start cutting down traffic, you can uh, promote things like cyclists and people, uh, and you can add lanes for those electric scooters. And then in that type of driving environment, you can 
produce a kind of automated bus service which um, with, with, with that's driverless that goes around a predictive route. And it becomes productive because you've already got a lack of uh, trucks and dangerous cars in the zone. Now, now that, that kind of thing, you might end up people devising a vehicle for a congestion zone under certain conditions. But I don't see this going out on the roads and going from the wilds of Sussex all the way into London uh, on country roads and motorways um, anytime soon. And I, and I, I think it's the type of journey that you know, these are going to have to stage their entry into the market through a back door. I mean, California, if you've driven in California, I hate to say this, you know, five lane free freeways, um, you just stick on a lane and, and go forever. And the rest of them are wide lanes where no one drives more than 25 miles an hour. It's it's um, um, it's chalk and cheese uh, combined. And that that's a very sedate environment in which to um, and highly policed uh, environment. I don't see the rest of the world looking like that. You, you try and put one of these on the A46 um, uh, to Bath, and it's going to a it's going to be stuck in a traffic jam. B it's going to be overtaken by by um, Audis doing 150 miles an hour. It, 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 that's a different driving environment where you probably don't want a, a sluggish, um, slow decision making vehicle uh, blocking your route. So so you know horses for courses. This is going to take a long time. I I I, I don't find this all that all that um, fascinating. I, I'm somebody, I'm probably the odd man out. Uh, I remember our colleague Alex said, told me everybody will be doing autonomous driving in five years. That was 10 years ago. <laughs> so, okay. I mean, it's good. It's, it's good. I, mean, I think it's, it's a sign of its profitability. Did you look at Ford's profits this year? You know, it's a sign of, of, of the profitability of the, of, the, of the two largest American company, car companies and how well they're doing. And how they um, they haven't been swept aside by Tesla because even Tesla has to put its trousers on one leg at a time, and its Cybertruck was delayed two years, and its um, its uh, semi truck has been delayed two years. Um, even you know, and, and that would have taken the big chunks of revenue out of those two companies, and they haven't happened. So I, I think um, you know, it, it's still a long way to go in the. Uh, uh, in the car stakes for self-driving, but the, the but meanwhile the car industry has to compete and live and and thrive and make profit. Simon, have you got anything for us? Well, yes, I'm just looking at a a, a little item um, about the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and how that's changing. Um, it, it, it's it's at, at the nuclear plant in Oswego, New York. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly in that hydrogen is being produced there. And was, I don't know who wrote this article, but th thinking that it may not have been able to have been produced before the IRA, is, is that correct? So it's making, it's making hydrogen. Yeah, I don't think this was viable. Um, the cost of uh, electricity is, um, is the main point of contention for making hydrogen. Everyone said, oh, everyone's tried to suggest that physics was impossible, that you couldn't change the laws of physics, therefore hydrogen couldn't be cheaper, whereas the price of electricity can come down and the price of uh, the capex cost of making an electrolyzer can come down, which makes hydrogen's uh, pricing uh, very flexible, but not if it's produced by a nuclear plant because the cost of, of, of uh, ensuring safety at nuclear plants 
um, means that uh, it's about $120 per megawatt hour uh, at the moment or above. Um, even even um, new nuclear designs only are only promising uh, $75 to $65 per megawatt hour, although um, NewScale recently admitted it couldn't get down to those numbers. So nuclear is a nice predictable source of energy, which is not cheap and therefore cannot be used for making hydrogen long term. Um, you won't find these people publishing um, their costs um, because the hydrogen they'll make could only be possible with a $3 subsidy on it from the Inflation Reduction Act. So, you know, that's why it's come to market. Um, at some point um, in 2030, that goes away. I think, you you know, I keep going back to the Inflation Reduction Act. It's got lots of unintended consequences, lots of businesses which are not viable, like carbon capture, uh, are not viable, will be made viable until 2030, whereupon they will die. So we create, we're, we're, we're interfering with the market in a way that's not natural. Sorry if that sounds like a Republican mm. idea, but um, it, it really is true. And there are lots of unintended consequences. And it all, all comes about because in order to get that legislation through, people had to you know, take into account what oil companies said about carbon capture, what, what um, nuclear companies said about the price of nuclear. They had to take that all into account and offer them something. And so it's... Um, it's the um, Swiss Army knife of, uh, of financing. You can you can finance anything in energy with it, and that it should have been no. It's only solar and wind, or it's only a limited number of things, and that's why it's not um, welcome uh, by the West, rest of the world. Uh, Americans love it because it means they can make a profit no matter what they do in energy. But um, that particular operation, yeah. You, if you go through the uh, the short stories. That, that idea comes up several times. It, it does, yeah. The carbon capture uh, project at Bayou Bend. Yeah. Um, that's 240,000 acres of space. And as you say, it's it's already wetland, which is su sequestering carbon. So why would you dig that up and actually in, in the beginning um you know you you want all those wetland plants what they do is they bind um carbon into the soil that they hold through their roots and um all over the world what are we doing we're chopping it down because you know it's watery and it's got i mean we're i was listening to a thing the other day on on the radio about um uh, people making uh, the desire for uh, prawn farms um and and they were uh, using up parts of um the uh, of wetlands all over asia and and what they're doing is they're effectively putting carbon back into the atmosphere um in instead and, and getting rid of plants which which do this job it, it seems it seems a, a really strange so, so here they're just going to grow these plants and dump carbon you know yeah. into the soil and the soil is going to absorb it well, it seems a very suspect um message um yeah. you know, I, i'd 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 really like to see the science behind that. But given that it's Chevron, I doubt there is any. Sorry, Chevron, if you're a customer. Any others that uh, caught your eye? A hydrogen fuel cell specialist, Loop Energy, yeah. has, uh, uh, has developed e-flow technology. Well, what is e-flow technology and how does this help the hydrogen industry? I believe it just is a tapering 
system to bring more um, hydrogen uh, pass. You know, I did read what it was. It seems trivial, um, okay. but, but it's All something right. they've patented um, and it, it, it increases. And I look for the yield in it. You know, is it up 5%, 15%? What's it up mm. by? No yield was mentioned. So, it's, okay. it, you know, it's, it's difficult to um, assess. Loop Energy is a respected company. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's looked at this problem and it probably has um, spent money coming up with this. It's Fraunhofer is one of the most respected um, test labs in the world. I don't know about Fraunhofer USA, but it's obviously tested this and says, yep, it works. It does improve it. I imagine that us by running that article will um, create a queue at their door because people will, <laughs> will, will um, want to know what it does. It, literally worth noting. If anybody else out there finds out what it does precisely, we'd much rather print the precise details. Thank you. Let us know. Okay. okay. Um, all of these stories are on um, rethinkresearch.biz, or they all will be shortly. Uh, you press the uh, button energy, and you'll find yourself in the weekly analysis. What I want to ask you to do is if you go there and read it, that's great. Click the forecast and data tab on the orange bar, and look at the um, huge amount of uh, of forecast and research papers that we have in uh, Rethink Energy and see if you can find the $4,500 that it costs to buy a subscription because that's the real uh, product. That's what helps you make strong decisions in the renewable energy industry anywhere in the world. Um, with that, I think we're going to call... Um, podcast to an end. Uh, thank you for, for listening and join us again next week.